Today's episode of the Nick Taylor Horror Show is brought to you by Deadly Grounds Coffee. It's the number one choice of horror fans worldwide. Nothing starts your day or night better than a delicious cup of Deadly Grounds. Whether you're hunting ghosts or fighting the next zombie apocalypse, any one of Deadly's 30-plus roasts will bring you to caffeine nirvana with the richest flavor you've ever had. Whether you're craving their hellhound roast, witch's brew, devil's night roast, or sinful delight, order online at getdeadly.com for easy and safe shipping right to your door. We know that once you go deadly, you won't go back. Join the deadly revolution today. Be bold, be different, be deadly. Deadly Grounds Coffee. Coffee to die for and zombie approved. Get some at getdeadly.com. Welcome back to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Josh Miller is a household name in the horror community. An American filmmaker, writer, director, and actor. Among other things, Josh created the Fox animated series Golan the Insatiable and wrote the script for the Sonic the Hedgehog film and directed the cult horror comedy Hey, Stop Stabbing Me. He's the co-host, along with Steven Scarlatta, of the Greatest Movies Never Made podcast, which showcases some of the most interesting movies that never got to see the light of day. Big fan of that podcast, by the way. I caught up with Josh to talk about his overall career, writing processes, and how he got to write an enormous studio picture like Sonic the Hedgehog on today's episode of the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Now, please give it up for Josh Miller. Josh Miller, how are you, sir? I am good. So how did your career in screenwriting begin? How did you get to the point where you you, you wrote something as enormous as Sonic the Hedgehog? I mean, the funny thing is uh, it took well over a decade, but we got Sonic. Basically, I can like directly string together um, the chain of events was we made a movie in college for like $500. And that's not an exaggeration. Uh, we spent almost nothing on it, but it was a feature length movie called Hey, Stop Stabbing Me. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, that this was during kind of the height of DVD format where we somehow found a like boutique DVD distributor, really tiny but was just kind of looking for anything. I think just the fact that it was a feature length movie. Um, I mean, I, th- I think it was pretty funny. The film itself turned out good, but it undeniably, you know, didn't star anybody. Uh, I think I'm a pretty good director, but like, we don't know anything about like lighting. Like, we're, you know, I, I know how to direct. I don't know how to do cinematography or videography. So it kind of looks like shit, <laughs> but it got released on DVD uh, I don't even know how many copies they released, maybe like 500 or something, but like a couple old websites reviewed it. And, um, this company called Snoot Entertainment who are still around, uh, doing fun stuff, uh, I guess for uh, horror listeners, um, Keith Calder and Jessica Wu run the company. And I think they're best known to horror people as they kind of, I don't want to say discovered, but they did all the old original Simon Barrett, uh, Adam Wingard movies like uh, Year Next and uh, oh, the right. 
Um, but when they were just starting out, like they haven't even made a, com- a movie yet. Uh, Keith read about Hey Stop Stabbing Me on some website, decided it sounded like fun, found a copy, watched it, liked it, tracked Pat and I down, and was like, let's make a movie together. Uh, we never did make a movie together. We're still trying to uh, all these many, many years later. But uh, I'm trying to think of the fastest way to tell the story. But through Keith, we met a guy named Dan Belgoyan, who works for a company called Depth of Field, which is a company of you know, the Whites Brothers. They did American Pie and About a Boy mm-hmm. um, and uh, not broke up. They're still brothers and still run a company together. But they used to be like a directing team and then kind of went off to do their own things. Um, but Dan was always like, oh, sorry, I even skipped a step. Um, you know, the website Something Awful. Oh, yeah. Com- um, so they apparently were also fans of our stupid college movie, Hey, Stop Stabbing Me. Uh, and they reached out to me um, being like, hey, would you like to write anything for our website? And this was like during like a, a real lull in our actual writing careers. Um, where we hadn't gotten a lot of projects going uh, after initially having some luck with uh, stupid college comedies. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wrote some stuff for their website and one of them was this reoccurring character named Golan the Insatiable and Dan at Depth of Field was always like, you guys should turn that into like an animated show. But first of all, we were only doing movies at the time and they were independent movies in the most literal sense. I feel now when you say indie movies, people think like Sundance and Mm -hmm. kind of art movies. But I just mean like they were funded by like a group of dentists, like that kind of (laughs) Um, and we're like, we don't know how to do anything legitimate, much less get an animated TV show going. But at the time, Fox was trying to basically do their own version of Adult Swim. And Dan got me in there to pitch a TV version of this character, which shockingly they ended up doing. And it was on uh, Fox Saturday night, late night. Very briefly, we only ended up doing... We did two seasons, but it was only a total of like 12 episodes. But that much like Hey Stop Stab Me was kind of like that had no high profile. Most people don't even know it ever existed. Uh, But some people saw it and the people who saw it really liked it. And one of those people was a guy named Toby Asher, who's a producer for Neil Moritz's company. Uh, And they were the ones who were making the Sonic the Hedgehog movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, And... For whatever reason, even though Golan the Insatiable was like an R-rated, you know, like adult animated TV show, he thought that it would be fun to have guys like us uh, write the Sonic movie. It wasn't as simple as that. Uh, You know, we were, he brought us in for what I like to call a bake-off, where there's like, you know, you never even know how many other writers competing. Right. But just, I'm sure there's like a dozen writers pitching on it, and you just kind of keep making it further and further in the process uh and eventually i guess we won you could say well that's great yeah and huge congratulations and uh, i mean what i really liked about the movie Sorry is... that, that was such a long roundabout way no me, that's what we want we want the, the big long stories uh actually led to getting something like sonic so yeah i feel like it speaks to the importance of just putting something out there having some sort of a calling card whereas a lot of people sit on hypothetical scripts that they may or may not write or movies that they've always wanted to do i don't know that i necessarily have tons of super practical 
advice because it's so crazy how all, all the different ways you can like break into the industry, but just making stuff and getting it out there, even if it's just throwing it on YouTube or, you know, writing short stories and just starting your own website that all it does is have your short stories on it. It's like, you never know how someone is going to find you. Right. Uh, uh, and again, just the fact that, uh, cause it's funny cause I, that story I told, like that was like probably maybe even 15 years worth of things happening. Like, uh, Keith, the guy at snoot, he hit us up about, Hey, stop stabbing me shortly after it came out. But then it was like, eight years after that, that something awful hit me up about it to write stuff where oh, wow. I created. One. So, you know, it, it obviously can be disconcerting if you put something out in the world and there's no reaction to it, but you never know. There might be eight years, 10 years, 20 years later. <laughs> yeah. There's a real, just long tail effect. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, uh, huge congrats on Sonic. Really? What I really enjoyed about it was it, uh, I feel like I don't have kids, but if I did, you know, I could show them this movie, but there was a lot for adults to enjoy. It kind of hit that Pixar balance of there's a lot of humor here for adults, but then there's also it will keep the kids happy and it's, you know, relatively squeaky clean for the most part. Was it difficult to write according and kind of walk that tightrope as you wrote? A little. I mean, we were writing the movie because it started at Sony and then moved to Paramount. And when it was at Sony specifically, uh, one of their initial kind of like notes, I guess, was just that they didn't want this to be like, you know, Elvin and the Chipmunks or the Smurfs. So we were kind of writing it like it was going to be PG-13. And then when it moved to Paramount, uh, Paramount, I mean, they didn't want to like water it down necessarily but they were very much like wanted to make sure it was pg um and so that was more of like a back and forth process where it's kind of like you strip out everything right that might make it pg 13 but then everyone kind of looks at it and they're just like well now this seems like it's too little kitty and you kind of go back and forth mm. uh kind of i'd say kidding it up and then adulting it up right and fortunately we had Jim Carrey, which we knew was always going to appeal. I mean, hopefully to kids because he's so funny, but uh, to adults of a certain age who grew up with him and kind of missed the 90s era Jim Carrey. Oh, so you knew he was cast already when you started writing? Not when we started writing, just I mean, because there was basically we wrote it and there was a script and it was done. And then it moved from Sony to Paramount and Paramount kind of immediately greenlit it. So it was still getting rewritten even as they were casting it. So there was definitely the point where Jim Carrey got cast. Right. And it's kind of, oh, now to like really Jim Carrey it up. Right, yeah, because it did feel like 90s era prime Jim Carrey. It felt like it was just written to to play to that side of him, which was really enjoyable. As a, I was a kid in the 90s, so yeah, that was that was extra fun. Oh, we were so excited. Yeah, that must have been super exciting. So, as how did you kind of craft your um, your your screenwriting ability, or um, how did you essentially learn the ropes of of screenwriting? Uh, I mean, with the the saying of you know you need ten thousand hours to like master anything. Uh, that we have Pat and I, my writing partner, always say that our that TV show we had in high school that was our ten thousand hours. Hmm. And then even unrelated to him, I I started, I don't know why, I have no 
real good explanation for why my brain worked like this as a kid. But like, I didn't, I didn't know what a short film was as stupid as that sounds. You know, you just go to the movies, rent movies. To me, that was a movie. I don't know what I'd ever, I ever, I don't think I'd seen a short film really until I got into college and understood that that's usually what you do. If you're trying to like break into anything or right. get good at it, you make shorts and you get better and better and better and better. And then you make a feature. I just started making feature length movies when I was in junior high. Whoa. Uh, sure. They're all, most of those are unwatchable. I, you know, now looking back, I'm like, Oh, I get why you make a short film. Uh, <laughs> but that was just, I think but what was good about that then is much earlier I had to start thinking about how do you write a full-length movie, uh, which I think helped. The The one downside I would say I see people who only made short films for a really long time is that when you then have to jump to doing a feature, uh, it's so it's so different to tell a story for eight minutes versus 90 minutes. Right. Um, and yes, it was, you know, it was really just a lot of trial and error that thankfully no one else can see. Uh, those were not movies that uh, will ever be released <laughs> to the world. Um, cool. And then uh, another thing yeah. was uh, I had a, I went to I went to the University of Minnesota, which didn't actually have a film program, so my film studies uh, was like an interdepartmental major, they call it where it's basically just kind of like every college at the college, you know, like the German department will have one German cinema class. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of just this weird cobbled together major. But I had one class taught by a guy named Tom Pope, uh, who I guess was kind of a unsuccessful screenwriter. You would say he had some like produced credits, but it's the kind of stuff that most people never really heard of. Uh, and he was now back in Minnesota teaching classes but he'd written this book that I've never heard anyone else talk about. And I haven't read it since college. So I don't know, maybe it's not actually a great book, but I thought it was really uh, educational and it was called good scripts, bad scripts. And he was really obsessed with like story structure, mm -hmm. uh, which is the kind of thing that up until then, even though I think I'd slowly been just again from trial and error of making these awful feature length movies, I was slowly understanding of like, oh, it was really monotonous when I just had that same thing happen for 40 minutes. Because at that time I was just like a movie's 90 minutes long. So I just needed 90 minutes of just garbage. <laughs> uh, but good scripts, bad scripts was very much highlighting like, now it's like, you know, save the cat and all that stuff right. that I guess are better known. But I've never really thought about it or seen it broken down and explained to me in that those terms. And it wasn't so much about act one, act two, act three, but just kind of like about pacing and the kind of things that you need to have happen by certain points uh, mm -hmm. in your story. Um, and then I remember one thing that really stuck out in my head in that was because I loved the movie Fargo in part because it was shot in Minnesota, <laughs> where I'm yeah. from. Um, but he used that as an example of kind of the mastery of the Coen brothers, because that's a that's like an example of a movie that you should never attempt to follow. Mm. It was kind of mm. the idea that they're so good that they can break with format. And the example of that, which I hadn't even thought of while watching a movie, was that Francis McDormand, who's ostensibly our protagonist, 
our hero of that movie, you don't even meet her until 40 minutes in. Right. Up until then, we've just been spending all this time with uh, who are basically our villains or just, you know, antagonists. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, just that kind of stuff like blew my mind. Things that all seem really obvious once someone points out to you, right. uh, but some the best educational things often are obvious once they're pointed out to you. Yeah. So do you try to adhere to any sort of daily minimum when it comes to either words written or pages written in a Stephen King style fashion as far as your writing practice goes, or is it all just based on the project? uh, I've done a few like books, not like, uh, like narrative prose fiction, more of what I would call like bathroom books, you know, just like weird novelty (laughs) things I did uh, many moons ago. And that was the only time because there was like a deadline and uh, that type of writing is so much different than screenwriting. Like I really get why people like Stephen King and other authors talk about getting up and getting a certain number of pages or words or like working for a certain number of hours because they have to produce so much more content. Right. Like you really do need to get a regimen. Um, I definitely think you should have some kind of regimen. It helps – that I have a writing partner. So like we need to get together. And over the years, we basically just decided we were going to treat it a little bit like a nine to five job. Like we don't actually get together 9 and 5 PM. I'd say maybe a little more like 11 AM to 5 PM, but mm-hmm. we get together mm-hmm. Monday through Friday. Uh, and we're often not productive whatsoever. <laughs> uh, and we've gotten very good at realizing when we're not being productive and that's when we'll usually just kind of fuck off for the day and go see a movie or rent a movie on iTunes or, you know, whatever. Um, but even that, you know, it's like as long as we're thinking about movies, we think that it all kind of adds back into the right. creative pot. But I mean, for us, it's usually just like someday we won't get crap done. And then the day after that, we'll get an insane amount done, right. um, which is a roundabout way of saying, no, we don't hold ourselves to minimums. uh Mostly just because we don't have to, you know, it's like we have a deadline and, and they kind of don't care. You know, if they give us two months to work on something, they don't care if we wait to the last two weeks to write it as long as it turns out okay. Right. Um, so we're very much just like whatever you need to do to get it done. I mean, it's kind of funny that even even at our age, um, we're still very much will do the college, you know, my papers due tomorrow, cramp <laughs> sessions of like, oh, no. The movie's due on Monday, and we basically kind of write the whole thing in three days. Right. Uh, after kind of pretending to be working on it for weeks on end, where we're really only getting like one scene done a day, <laughs> if that. Uh, like today, I wrote one scene, and it wasn't good. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got it out of your system. I feel like part of it is yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. And then tomorrow will be a better day. Yeah. Well, it feels like a real fortunate thing to have a writing partner. How do you guys kind of work together in terms of who does what uh is there any sort of what what kind of are the keys to um the complementary nature of your partnership because clearly there's something very complementary about the dynamic that you guys have together what is it that makes that work well i don't think it's a coincidence that most like successful uh writing teams are brothers or people who grew up together. I'm always amazed when I meet people who are like 
in their thirties and became writing partners with somebody like last year. Mm. Uh, not like I, I don't wish them well, but I'm always just kind of like, well, good luck. Um, <laughs> Cause I think you need, yeah, you need to be brothers or like best friends or like a married couple or something. Cause it's kind of, in some ways it's kind of like you need to have already worked through whatever bullshit to like move past. Cause it's like, we don't really argue about stuff. Um, which is not to say we don't disagree about stuff, but like, I, you know, I don't feel like there's like any real creative beefs we ever have that I feel like it's the kind of thing that happens if you've already been like used to writing on your own for so long. Cause I always had a writing partner even before I knew what a writing partner was. And before, uh, Pat and I became writing partners just when I was making my awful feature length films. Uh, you know, it just seemed boring to be doing it by myself. I wanted somebody there to kind of bounce ideas off of even, even if, uh, my, like my, one of my friend, Nick, or my early writing partners, my friend, Nick, uh, who now works, he's like an investment baker. So he doesn't had no plans to do anything creative. His joke was always that, uh, I was writing the movie and he was just sitting there so I could like tell him what it was about. Um, <laughs> but I mean, but that was, I still thought that was really useful. I, I mean, not like I can't work when I'm by myself. Um, but uh, I just think it's helpful to have someone to talk to. Like, I, I don't necessarily think everyone should have a writing partner because the downside of that is that you have to split all your paychecks. Mm-hmm. Um, so especially if you live in like L.A. or New York, uh, where the cost of living is already pretty high. It does suck, especially when you're starting out and getting paid crap uh, to have to split that 50, 50 with mm. somebody. Cause they don't pay um, you twice as much if there's two of you. No. Well, and that's the thing uh, we learned, um, about the difference between the writer's guild and the director's guild is the director's guild frowns upon uh, partnerships and they actually make it very hard to get approved to be a direct team. Uh, we discovered, uh, when we finally had to go do that, Pat and I, um, but, and part of how DGA works is even when you're a team, you still get paid individually. Mm. Uh, and I know that that's something that a lot of people in the writers guild would like to get, uh, changed moving forward. Um, even if you're not paid as two individual people that there's still, you get paid more, um, the downside of that is that's part of why uh, Hollywood loves writing teams, especially in TV, is it's an easy way to get more people in your writer's room uh, without having to spend more money. Oh, I never thought of it that way. Um, but, uh, uh, and I realize I kind of strayed from part of your original question. No, no, no. How, how we work is neither of us really specializes in anything. And I always think it would be interesting if we did. Uh, I don't know if that would make us more productive or not. Um, but we're basically, uh, over the years, I think we've gotten better at it too. I feel like in the, the past six or seven years, we've gotten really good at it feeling like there are two people, like we're producing, uh, more than just one person could, right. which we were maybe guilty of, uh, when we first started out, uh, that I don't, I don't, didn't, it didn't feel like we were as productive as having two of us there. Gotcha. Uh, but now it's like like we're working on two scripts right now. So some days one of us will be working on one of the movies while the other one's on the other one. 
Uh, and Pat actually has been making a joke that he'll go. Uh, we use a program called Writer Duet. Are you familiar with that? I'm not, no. It basically works like Google Docs or anything. Like it, it exists on the cloud uh, and it's a way for two people to be writing on something at the same time, uh, whether we're together or both in our separate houses. Oh, nice. The joke that sometimes he'll like get up and he'll open it and discover that uh, magic elves have written part of the movie for him. <laughs> uh, and it does kind of feel like that. That's Especially always a nice feeling. Because normally we work together. Uh, so now it's like we don't even necessarily know what scenes the other one's working on. Oh, so you try to work together in the same room. Uh, when we're not being forced to quarantine, yeah. Right. Uh, we usually, I know some writing teams, uh, work like literally at the same time. Like they're both looking at the same screen, typing out the dialogue. We don't work that way. Like we will outline together. And then even if we're in the same physical space, once we're actually writing, we're usually, we're working on different scenes and we're just kind of sitting there quietly. Got it. Got it. Yeah, it makes sense. I don't know if I'd be able to ever work a, like literally right next to somebody staring at the same screen while one oh, of you watches as the other. Nuts. Yeah. Like, you know, we're on the same team, so it's not like we're being like secretive or competitive, but like I just can't. For, for whatever reason, it just makes me, it weirds me out if someone's like watching what I'm doing. Yeah, I don't like that <laughs> I, either. I'd just be like, wait till I'm done with the scene and then I'll show it to you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's like somebody watching you while you're trying to pee. Totally. And like I used to draw a lot uh, when I was growing up and that was one of my big pet peeves is if someone was like standing over my shoulder and watching me draw. And I've had people ask like, why does that bother you? And I'm like, I don't know. It's, it's just not- a thing, man. I feel the same way. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like it's not done yet. They're like, are you worried that like I'm judging like what you're doing? Like I think it's bad. And I'm like, no, I don't know. I've never really psychoanalyzed it. I just don't like it. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, me too. So it's, a, it's a subconscious thing. I just I don't like it. So how are you spending this other than writing? Are are you watching or binging anything worthwhile, either movies or shows or books wise to pass the time? Well, I'm in a horror book club. with Some other industry people, we call it the losers book club. Nice. Cause we're super clever. Um, but which was funny because uh, part of why I wanted to start this book club was that years ago, it dawned on me that I love horror uh, I don't get to make as many like horror projects myself as I would like to. Um, a lot of people just view us as comedy guys, which we're trying to not get away from, but bust out yeah. from a little bit. Um, but yeah, I host this horror screening series. Uh, it's my favorite genre, but I didn't read a lot of horror. I mostly read like sci-fi and fantasy and like nonfiction. So uh, starting this book club, uh, with my friend Chelsea Stardust, who made Satanic Panic. Very cool. Yeah, I spoke to Chelsea on the show. Destroy. Oh, great. Uh, uh, yeah, but that just seemed like a fun thing to do. Um, so I'm reading that right now. We're reading The Exorcist. Nice. Ever read. I have oh. it. I have not read it yet. But I heard yeah. Ryan Turek talking about it on Shockwaves and how different, the little differences between the book and the movie, it's which apparently fascinating. It's a adaptation of the movie. Like, you're not like, I'm like, oh, here's this character. Here's that scene. Um, but, you know, like anything, it just goes into further, further detail. Uh, and it's almost more fucked up in a lot of ways, even as fucked up as the movie is. Oh, yeah. Um, but as far as watching, uh, 
I'm trying to think. I, because I can't do my Friday Night Fright screenings, I just decided mainly, mostly for my own amusement. Um, but uh, I was inspired by my uh, girlfriend, KJ. Her and her friend, Suki, started an uh, Instagram account called Remote Viewing, I think it's called, where they just recommend double features to watch, but specifically with the idea that they're highlighting like streaming services that are free. Um, cause obviously everybody has, uh, Netflix, but maybe if you recommend that something's on HBO or Criterion, it's like people don't necessarily have those. Right. So it's kind of, but like, I don't know if you ever watched Tubi, which is kind of the greatest streaming app ever. Like it has ads, but I'm fine with that. But it's like they have so much weird and good stuff. Yeah, on they there. seem like they have everything. Anytime I'm looking for something, and I do that Apple TV search function where it searches across everything, like yeah. HBO Now and Nef- Tubi has everything that oh, I can't find anywhere else. Up, uh, and I like recommending stuff that's on like Hoopla or Canopy, which are both public library things. Oh, that's cool. That everyone has access to if you have a library card, which everyone can get and sign up online. But anyway, on Friday Night Frights. Uh, LA, my Instagram account and uh, Twitter. I've just been kind of recommending horror double features that are free to everyone. Or I feel like horror fans should have Shutter. I don't mind recommending. Oh yeah, even though that's a pay service that maybe everyone doesn't have, but everyone should. Damn it. Yeah, I totally agree. Everybody should have Shutter for sure. Well, that's cool. That uh, there's a real art to pairing up double features for sure, as as you well know, obviously. Yeah, that's what I said. I'm mostly just doing it to amuse myself, but I know that some people are like, "Oh, hey, yeah, I should uh, rewatch that." Like I just recommended uh, for Easter a uh, zombie double feature of uh, Return of the Living Dead and Dead Heat. Uh, Nice. Yeah, I haven't seen Dead Heat. Steve worked on that one. Oh yeah, Steve Johnson. Second, I thought you meant Steve Scarlatta, my podcast. Oh, no, no, no. Steve Johnson. What? No, he was like in high school then or something. Uh, (laughs) No, yeah. And that's, uh, I I just only brought that up because even though I'm mostly doing it to amuse myself, I got a lot of feedback from people who are like, oh, man, I forgot about that movie or had never seen it. So, very cool. It's fun to recommend. Nice. So, last few questions. Um, Obviously, when it comes to screenwriting and filmmaking, there's so many books and resources out there. It's, it's very easy to get lost. And a lot of them are just kind of not so good. You you had recommended that one book. Good Scripts, Bad Scripts by Tom Hope. Yeah. Were there any other? I don't know. I wonder if that's – I'd be curious to look that up on Amazon. I don't know if that's still in I feel print. like I've seen it before. It sounds really familiar. I feel like I've come across it. Were there any other resources or books that were formidable for you that you would recommend? I mean, I think everyone, again, I don't remember. It's been so long since I've read good scripts, bad scripts that might, I don't know if it's good. It just might be that thing that, you know, everybody needs their like kind of first taste. Right. And that would, that was just the one that kind of opened the barn doors for me, but everyone uh, who's interested in movies should definitely read William Goldman's adventures in the screen trade. Mm. Um, just because it's just such a good book. Uh, it's just like a fun warts and all exploration of what it's like to be a screenwriter. Granted what it's like to be the like, you know, highest paid Oscar winning screenwriter of the seventies and early eighties, um, which is a good book. And I mean, William Goldman in particular, another thing uh, along with like before good scripts, bad scripts. And before I read adventures in the screen trade, Kind of my first real taste 
with behind the scenes stuff. Cause you know, I, I grew up like the internet existed in the nineties, but it's like, I, I don't know. I wasn't a, a tech kid. Um, I wasn't going on AOL or anything. Um, I didn't really look at the internet until college. Um, but, uh, and I didn't really have movie magazines. Like I'd seen like entertainment weekly, but you know, that was, that's just kind of like populist. Yeah. Uh, celebrity driven stuff and movie reviews. Uh, but like, I'm sure most kids who, uh, your family knew you liked movies. So that just meant every birthday and Christmas present you ever got from aunts and uncles were just like, you like movies. Here's a movie thing. Yep. Somebody got me the very generically titled four screenplays by William Goldman. And I think it's, I think it's princess bride, butch Cassidy and the Sundance kid misery and maybe marathon man i don't quite remember the four but it's four screenplays by william goldman and before each one he just wrote like a little essay of, of his memories of oh, that's working cool. on that script and movies and that really blew my mind i was just like uh and then you know that led me then to like actually go to the magazine section uh, like Barnes and Noble and stuff and find magazines like premiere and stuff, which don't exist anymore. Uh, I used to intern for premiere. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. My first like day one, they were writing an article about the best sex scenes in movies. And I had to fact check their descriptions of all of these sex scenes. Day one. It was awesome. Wow. Yeah. I had to watch this, the uh, vampire lesbian sex scene from the hunger, um, it's not technically a sex scene. It's more of a love scene, but there was the other, the, um, the, the scene with, uh, Indiana Jones when he's pointing to where it hurts on his body. Yeah. And there were a few more, but yeah, it was, a, it was a hell of a first day. That's fun. Fun aside. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, definitely. just like that, that was then, uh, when I started kind of tracking down and reading, uh, more academic stuff and just, you know, behind the scenes stuff about making movies cool well cool josh it was a real pleasure talking to you man i feel like we've crossed paths a couple times at uh fangoria parties and maybe monster palooza i feel like we've had a couple words here and there but uh good to finally talk to you on a longer timeline thanks for having me thanks a lot any uh parting wisdom for those aspiring filmmakers and screenwriters out there i just again gotta make shit and get it out there so it's technically findable for people to see and, uh, I mean, you know, always stick with it. I definitely know it's harder to stick with it for some people than other people. I think writing is at least easier than like acting or directing or something that as far as that you can just kind of have a job and do it on the side and keep, keep hoping mm-hmm. that something mm-hmm. will, will click. But I think it's always nice to find a Find a thing that no one can stop you from doing that, you know, you don't need to get paid if whether it's, yeah, just kind of writing short stories or starting a comic and just putting it up online, um, having that creative outlet, keeping it, you know, keeping the keeping that candle in the window. Yeah, you got to keep that blade sharp. Yeah. Cool. Well, on that note, Josh, thank you again and uh, stay safe and well. You too, Zach. All right, here as always are some key takeaways from this conversation with Josh Miller. Number one, make something, anything. 
Josh's start came from having no contacts or major footholds in the industry at all. Instead, he made a super low budget feature in college called Stop Stabbing Me, and regardless of how good it was, ultimately it led him to get recognition, which over time yielded his eventual career success. A lot of would-be filmmakers get held up on perfectionism and waiting for the perfect project instead of just fucking making something. Yes, it's important that your name be synonymous with quality, but when you're just starting out, all producers really want to know is that you can finish something and release it. That alone will enable you to stand above about 75% of the pack. So in the words of Robert Rodriguez, keep making shit. You never know where it can lead. Number two, read good scripts and bad scripts. As a screenwriter, Josh reads a ton of scripts. And as important as it is to seek out good scripts, it's almost as important to seek out and read bad scripts. A bad script allows you to have a higher level of consciousness about the pitfalls of screenwriting, like lame dialogue, bad storytelling, lack of tension, etc. It's critical to identify these things so you can avoid them. And the best way to do that is to get acquainted with what makes a bad script bad by reading bad bad scripts. So the next time you see a movie and realize it had a bad script, find the screenplay, track it down, read it, and analyze for yourself what went wrong and what you would have done to have fixed it. I personally find that journaling about what you don't like about certain movies or certain scripts is a great way to avoid mistakes when it comes time for you to sit down and write. Number three, stick with it. Josh got to write the script for an epic production like Sonic the Hedgehog, but it came after years of trying to break through with multiple projects. Josh stayed the course, built his contacts, stayed on the radar of important people, and simply didn't give up for over 10 years, and here he is. Of course, success like this is never guaranteed, but failure is once you throw in the towel. After writing Sonic, Josh is heralding Sonic the Hedgehog 2, and I don't want to start a rumor, but it's on Wikipedia, so I guess I can say it. Looks like Josh is pinning the untitled Ace Ventura sequel. Fingers crossed. In any event, Josh's story is similar to many directors in how it is one of endurance and momentum. Keep at it and stay the course. Anyway, guys, thank you as always for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with your friends and family on social media? Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at I'm Nick Taylor and on Twitter at the same handle. Thanks again for listening to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Mm-hmm.